This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. You might wonder why are we looking at a gospel with no birth narrative on this first Sunday of Advent? We'll have to see what Mark uh, would have us to focus on at the beginning of his gospel. We know that the title of any work typically gives us a pointer to what is most important and what the author is getting at, and that is true in this case with Mark. prepares us for the rest of the book. So let's look at verse 1, and let's remember uh, a little bit of background. Mark probably is writing this in Rome or to Rome so that the Roman context is clearly in view in what we're going to see and a challenge that Mark lays out for us about Jesus and who he is. So that's where Mark begins. Who is this Jesus? We'll just read verse 1 of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray before we begin. Our Father, we do ask that you would be with us now, that you would speak to us through your word, that we would see your Son, Jesus, that he is our true King. Father, help us to understand and help us to live out your word in the light of this truth. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Mark did deliver this in the Roman uh, context. And as you think about Rome and its glory, the Roman Empire, it was very impressive. You could walk around Rome and see the magnificent buildings and the giant armies with the shiny armor and shields and swords. And what was the Roman Empire all about? They were bringing order. They were bringing rule into the world. And especially if you ask someone uh, high up in Rome, what were they doing? They were bringing light into the world. They were bringing justice and order and prosperity, commerce, peace. That was what Rome was doing in the world. That was their task. So the Caesars, because of this, were actually deified in some sense. They were looked on as those who provided all of those things for the people of Rome. They provided peace. They provided justice. They provided prosperity for all of the people. And so that's why they were deified. But Mark has a challenge for them, and he had a challenge for them, but it is also a challenge for us in our time. It might have been a hard sell in that day to someone who could look around and see the awesome power of the Roman Empire. But Mark goes straight, cuts straight to the point, and he says, Caesar is not the king. Rome is not the light in this world. The true king is Jesus. That's what a king looks like. He's the true king in this world. And that's really what Mark is reminding us. We so easily forget who the true king is. That's our problem. We forget all the time who is the king in this world and who rules. And so how do we as God's people make Jesus king in our life when all around us, what do we hear every single day? You're king. You're the one who takes charge of your own life. You're the one who brings prosperity. You can control. You can manage. You can make it all happen in your life. So Mark's challenge would hit us as well. So Mark looks 
at Jesus and he says, behold your king. So there's good news that Jesus is the true king. So what kind of king is Jesus? We'll look at three things. He is, first of all, the true king. And then we'll see he's the conquering king. And then we'll see, finally, he is the servant king. So he's the true king. Look down at verse 1 again. Mark begins with that word. Something's beginning. There's something new happening. Something is beginning. Well, he is not saying this is an absolute beginning, because immediately, what does he do? He connects this King Jesus with an Old Testament story. He gives Jesus two titles. He says he is the Christ and he is the Son of God. Well, those come straight out of the Old Testament. And those are kingly titles. The Messiah is the long-expected king who would come and reign, whose reign would expand forever and ever and ever, and the peace and the justice and the wisdom of that kingdom would have no end. And that's what the Son of God, that title is also a kingly title. The Son of God was, well, you have to go back to the Exodus. When the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, he said to Pharaoh, to go tell, he told Moses, go tell Pharaoh, I need my son to be let go so he can come and worship me. So God's people, he said, Israel's my firstborn. Israel's my son. And so God's people were considered God's sons and daughters. And God was their father. So as time went on in their history, when they were given a king to rule over them, the king was also known as the son of God. God told David, your descendants will be my son. I will adopt them as my son because they will rule over my people. And they weren't just called the son of God. The Davidic king wasn't just called the son because they were one of God's people. It was mostly because they were the one who represented God's people, who they were the champion of the people who defended them, who led them in following obediently the Lord's commands, but also defending them and driving off the enemies. So they represented the king represented and embodied God's people, the sons and daughters of God. So he as the representative was called the son of God. So he gives Jesus Mark begins with these two kingly titles for who God is. And he sounds that note of fulfillment. It's beginning. It's here. The true king that we've been waiting for, who actually will bring peace and prosperity and justice for God's people. It's happening right now. And this is the good news. Now, the good news, as we read in our call to worship, that's straight out of the Old Testament. It's that note of fulfillment again of God is now active. He's now working, bringing salvation for his people. But that word also has an important meaning in this Roman context that Mark is addressing. And let me read you an inscription that was found about Caesar Augustus. This is what they said, an inscription that's been found uh, about Caesar Augustus. It says, The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news. So do you see that idea that the Caesars were the ones who procured security and peace and prosperity? They were the ones who achieved this in the world, and so they're deified for that. So when a new heir is born in the Roman Empire, that's the term they use. This is the good news. Good news. Another king has been born. He will continue to rule the world and bring success and commerce and prosperity. So do you see Mark's challenge? Listen to that inscription again. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news. What does Mark say? The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that's Mark's challenge. He hits it dead on. Caesar is not the king. Jesus is the king.
So how would Mark challenge us this morning? There is no more Roman Empire. Are there powers in the world that are impressive that we would be tempted to look to? Armed forces or uh, the United Nations or just America as, as our nation? We have a lot of power. Are we tempted to look to that as the bringer of peace and prosperity in the world? Well, I think Mark would, would say no. We, we can't be tempted by any of those big powers in the world. But as I mentioned, in our culture, the king is me. And don't forget it. Don't forget it. And that's what we're told. You're king. No one can tell you what to do. Even if you get rid of the king, as we did in the Garden of Eden, and we told God, we don't want you for a king. There's a thousand kings lining up to take his place. I remember one of Mel Gibson's more manly roles as he was uh, playing a character on the edge of the Revolutionary War, and they were debating, the colonists were debating whether or not to revolt against England. They were saying, well, this is not fair. We have taxation without representation. King George III is a tyrant. Let's get rid of him. And Mel Gibson's character said, well, let's, let's hold on a second. Let's be patient here and let's think about what we're saying. And then he says, uh, kind of a, a biting line, he says, why should we trade uh, one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? Well, he's making that, that same point. We can get rid of one god or one tyrant, but there's, there's so many waiting to take his place. So we can't be fooled because that's really what we struggle with, isn't it? We struggle with having Jesus for our king. We so easily fall into that trap of managing our lives, controlling everything, thinking I can bring order, success, security, and peace. So we have to confront that and let Mark's claim challenge us this morning. Because it's when, when Caesar claimed... You know, I'm a God, I'm a king, I bring peace and security in this world. That was an audacious claim. But Caesar also had big marble buildings and big armies to back that up, even though it was audacious. Well, when we claim that for ourselves, when we let ourselves believe that we can bring security and prosperity and we can manage that and, and bring that about without fail in our own life, it's just as audacious, even more audacious. So let's let Mark challenge his challenge hit us this morning and ask ourselves, where are, we, where are we tempted to replace Jesus as king? Where have we not made him our true king? Not if, but where. Now Mark's challenge about the true king implies that Jesus is here to do something about it. So Jesus is not just king on paper. He doesn't just have these titles of Messiah, of Christ, of the Son of God. He's here to take back all that is his. So he's the conquering king, secondly. He's taking back all of his former realm, what's rightfully his. And as I mentioned, Mark doesn't have that birth narrative. He doesn't ease into the life of Jesus. He hits it at a full run. He says, look at this king and look at what he's doing. It's a very vivid narrative. You can read it in about a couple of hours if you just read it straight through. Even a slow reader can read it in a couple of hours. And it's fast paced. About 40 times he, he says, and immediately Jesus did this. And he's giving a scene after scene of what Jesus, the conquering king, is doing. Now in Matthew, as Alan's been taking us through, do you notice in Matthew he has those long sections of teaching. It's very deliberately paced. Because Matthew's point is, 
You need to come from a little faith and progress and mature into a, a disciple. That's Matthew's. That's the heart of what Matthew's getting at. Mark's, it's more of, look at what Jesus is doing and respond to that. Do you see how he is the conquering king? And so as the story opens up, as the beginning chapters of Mark open up, we see Jesus' power and authority demonstrated over every area of life. He feeds people, providing for their physical needs. He calms the storm with just a word, showing his power and authority over the creation with his voice. He casts out demons. He heals the diseases and sickness. Every area of life that is broken because of sin, he comes in and he says, I'm here, I'm invading, I'm going to roll all of these consequences of your rejection of me as king. I'm going to roll them all back. And so even the demonic, even death, he addresses and hits it head on. So it's universal. What does he come to conquer? All of it. He's taking it all back. He's going to rule over us. And that's what Mark would have us do, to look at that and draw the proper conclusion, to respond and say, this is the true king. I'm going to follow him. Look at what he does. He's showing he's the true king because he is powerful. He's conquering. Now, a lot of you were raised on reruns of classic westerns like I was. And what's the formula in the western? What's what happens when the Lone Ranger comes to town? We know it's all over because all the bad guys that have overrun the town, that have despoiled everything and brought all these horrible consequences and oppressed the people. As soon as the hero shows up, we know what's going to happen. And we get excited. We 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 know what's going to happen, but yet we're, we're ready to watch and to see it happen. And so that is what Mark would have us do. We see the true king come into town and we see him begin to conquer. We're supposed to be drawn into that and respond to him. But we know that the deepest needs in our world are not simply those of sickness and disease and of provision of food. Those are not our deepest needs. What is the deepest need that we have? Jesus, as our king, as our conquering king, He, in wisdom, sees our most pressing need, which is our sinful heart. And so he also meets that challenge directly. When Jesus is uh, in the beginning here of Mark's account, one of the first things before he begins his public ministry is that he comes and he's baptized by John the Baptist. Well, that's significant because what has John the Baptist been doing? He's been calling people to do what? To come and repent in preparation for the true king appearing on the scene. And so in the Jordan River, they've been taking the water and symbolically washing away their sins, repenting, turning from their sins unto God. So what does Jesus do when he comes on the scene? The conquering king comes and he goes to the water and he takes that water and he puts it upon himself. He puts our sin on himself. That's the conquering king that we have. He comes and he sees our most pressing need, the sinful heart that says, I will have no king. I will make my own life. And I will procure peace, justice, and security in my world. He said, that is your, 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 that's your most basic need, is to turn away from that attitude and take me back for your true king. I'm the only one that can meet all of your needs, who can deal with your sinful heart. In Mark 2, we all know the story of the paralytic who was brought before Jesus, the man who could not even move. And Jesus looks at him, and what does he say? He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals them. He doesn't say, 
Rise up and walk. And now let's talk about your sin. He looks at him and he realizes his most important need is to be forgiven of his sins. And he says, and he shows him that he is his king. I have a professor from seminary who was just in town for the CEMP conference, and he reminded me of uh, what he called the American Catechism. We all know our catechism. What is the chief end of man? chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he said, well, in America, we've rewritten that. The American Catechism is that the chief end of man is to glorify myself and to live a life of comfort and ease. And Jesus says, no, I love you too much to let you live that way. If you give your life to those things, you're going to be disappointed. It's never going to be enough. It's going to weary you. And so when Jesus begins his ministry, look down at verse 15. That's the heart of his message and what he preaches. He said, the time is fulfilled. The king is here. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. Turn away from this attitude, from this heart, who rejects me as king, and return home. So he calls us to repent, to turn to him as our ultimate loyalty. But he doesn't just uh, lay down a demand upon us, be encouraged. Because he's not just king on paper, he actually has the power to help us repent. Repenting's hard work. It's no fun at all. But we need to give our time and energy to it and depend upon the Lord in it and say, Lord Jesus, I know I struggle in these areas But you're king. You came to do something about it. You can conquer my heart. I believe the good news that you know my most pressing needs and you will help me. So as we examine ourselves and we see in our lives, where do I get anxious? Where am I afraid? Where do I get angry? Where am I trying to manage and and bring about prosperity or peace in my own way apart from God? Lord, show that to me. Help me repent. Now, I have a couple of of objections to address. If you're unwilling to serve King Jesus, you might be saying, well, isn't this just about Christianity and, and their arrogance? Rome had an arrogance, didn't they? How many people resisted Rome's rule? And rightfully so, because Rome didn't just bring peace and security, did they? They brought destruction and death. As well. And so many peoples resisted that rule and that superiority complex that Rome have had of we're the ones who bring light, we're the ones who bring peace. So all around us, there are people who say, well, Christians are just the same way. You're just trying to control, you're just trying to manipulate, you're just trying to impose your will upon me. Isn't the solution then just to Again, break free of all kings. Well, that's one objection. How does Mark answer that? Well, maybe you have another problem. You might say, well, I'm not, I'm not suspicious or cynical about Christianity. I just, I'm just weak. I struggle to be faithful. Well, what would Mark say to both of those? Not just that Jesus is the true king, and not just that he's the conquering king, But clearly in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus is the servant king and answers both of those objections. Don't ever forget it. He is the true king, but he's the servant king. He gives his own life in our place.
place. Jesus has some credibility because he doesn't use his kingly office to advance his own selfish needs. As king, he thinks of us first. The key verse in Mark that many of you know is when Jesus teaches his disciples, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's think back to the title of Mark's gospel. The title again prepares us to read the book as a whole. So if Jesus is the king from verse 1, we have to then let the book inform that those titles, those kingly titles, the rest of the way. Mark wants us to see Jesus' kingship in the light of how the story unfolds. And how does it unfold? Well, here's a simple outline of Mark in chapters 1 through 8. As I mentioned, he is the conquering king. He's showing his authority and power over every area of life and his ability to deal with it. But then in, verse, in chapter 8 to 10, there's a turn. And that's when Jesus begins to deliberately teach and systematically teach his disciples that he came to give his life away for his people. And so he teaches three times clearly that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles and be crucified. Then he will rise. So that's chapters 8 to 10. And then in chapters 11 to 16, he does it. He doesn't just say he's going to do it. He comes through. And in Mark, chapters 11 through 16 is the clear focus. That's 40% of the gospel, roughly. And it's just one week of his life. One week gets 40%. Why? Because that's what Mark wants us to zoom in on. That's what he wants us to see. What type of king is Jesus? He's the servant king. How does he conquer? By giving his own life away. By sacrificing himself. And because he sacrifices his own life, he does procure our ultimate success, our ultimate peace and ultimate justice in this world because of that security, because of that, he then calls us to be loyal to him in an ultimate way, to give our lives away, to serve others, to respond by taking every single word, every commandment, and following him loyally, without doubt, without fear of manipulation, without fear of failure, because he knows our weakness, and yet he still went to the cross. He knows our Suspicion that we're afraid of those who would control and manipulate us. He takes away those fears. said, look at who I am. Look at what type of king I am. I'm a servant king. I'm here to bring out your, your humanity. I only insist, I only insist on banishing the sin that twists and distorts it and the attitude that says, I will have no king. So Mark begins the story here. Jesus is the true king. And then he shows us how this king conquers as the servant king. Now, when we read in our scripture reading the account of the cross and the centurion's confession, this is the son of God. Well, of course, that echoes the title. The beginning of the the good news about Jesus Christ, the son of God. But it's very important that the tension that comes throughout the gospel comes from this. There is uh, this statement at the beginning that Jesus is the Son of God. And as Jesus begins to conquer and do all these amazing things, no one responds and says, this is the Son of God. No one does it. 
And so the question hangs over the whole gospel. And Jesus is always asking questions like this. Do you still have no faith? Don't you understand? Do you see who I truly am? Who I am? Do you see what type of king I am? Well, the tension builds because no one's getting it. Until when? Where is Jesus seen to be the... What type of king is he? Where is it most clearly shown? Mark says, look at the cross where he's dying and giving his own life away, where he's thinking of others. And that's when he is shown to be the Son of God. That's when he is clearly revealed as God's king, as the king for all eternity, the king who will conquer all our enemies, including our own simple hearts. So, what do you say? Will you have this king? Will you have him? When you sit here and listen to Alan preach, are you looking for a tip to get you through life? Are you looking for something? Are you just evaluating and sifting it and saying, well, that sounds good. I could use that. That's helpful. Or are you sitting here listening to Alan preach saying, I'm ready for my marching orders. King Jesus, you died for me. You're the conquering king. You're the true king. I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do. You know my weakness. Help me. But I will follow you by your grace. I will serve you. You're the true king. So this is your king. Will you have him? Let's pray. King Jesus, we do praise you. Who is a God like you? Who is a king who... Instead of using his subjects to further his own purposes, he gives his own life away for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, you know our weakness. You know our failures. You know how we are deceived so many times. How we believe that we can achieve and accomplish and manage our own lives apart from you. We pray that you would conquer our hearts. That you would draw us in. You would give us the marching orders we need and give us the grace to follow you loyally. We ask in your name. Amen.